There is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, Scott Pauley leads us in a brief study of Scripture. Today, on the Weekend Pulpit, we are happy to share a full-length Bible message given through Scott's pulpit ministry. These messages were recorded live in a local church or gospel event in recent days. It is our prayer that the message will be a help to you today. I want you to open your Bible with me, if you will, to the book of 1 Thessalonians again. To 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2. Of all of the chapters in 1 Thessalonians, I think probably this is one of the most neglected. At least in my own thinking, I've breezed through it many times, and it is an amazing chapter, but you almost read it thinking, well, it's just biographical information. It's just, it's narrative. It's Paul talking about his experience. Can I just remind you that all scriptures give my inspiration of God and is profitable? And that there's a message that God has for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2. And before we read any of it, would you look this way for just a moment? Did you know that every chapter of 1 and 2 Thessalonians references the second coming of Jesus Christ? Every chapter. Almost like that was the Lord's message. Like every chapter. Don't miss this, church. Jesus is coming. Don't miss this, church. Jesus is coming. We began our study in chapter 1 in the last hour and I pointed out to you the coming of Christ in the last verse, in verse number 10. We're waiting for his son from heaven. So it comes at the end of the chapter. Well, look at chapter 2. Let's start at the end. Can we get to the bottom line, the conclusion of the whole matter? It is again at the end of the chapter. In verse number 19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. I love these words in verse 19, hope, joy, and crown. <laughs> if I said to you, what's your hope? What's your joy? What's your crown? What are you living for? Paul said, oh, that's easy for me. I can tell you exactly what it is. It's souls. It's you. It's not a what. It's a who. You know, there's some things I've never seen on a grave marker. Grant and I were in a cemetery the other day. My aunt went to be with Jesus, and I preached her, her funeral. And we had stopped by the cemetery a few days after just to see where she was buried, and it was just he and I. You may know this. Before my dad started preaching, he was in the cemetery business. And uh, some people think that's strange, but somebody does it, you know. And uh, it's funny. Whatever your dad does for a living, that's what you notice. <laughs> and so I just I see things differently. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, we... We'd be driving down the road on vacation, and somebody in our car would say, that's a nice cemetery. It sounded like the Adams family on vacation or something, you know, but <clears throat> it was just normal for us. It wasn't morbid. And when I was a boy, I started collecting epitaphs. I mean by that, things put on grave markers. And, and I've got a whole collection of them. I mean, there's some fascinating ones. And I, I guess it just has rubbed off on our kids because this, this may sound strange, but our kids have always loved looking at the, the markers and seeing what the epitaph is, what it says. And I, I stopped while we were there in the cemetery by my grandfather's grave. I preached his funeral years ago. He's been with Jesus a number of years. 
And he was a World War II vet. He was a part of the greatest generation. Had a little word, a footer at his, at his grave about being a World War II veteran, a Navy veteran, and what he did in his class and all of that. And we stood there and talked about it. But it's an amazing thing. There's some things I've never seen on a grave marker. I've never seen on a grave marker anybody brag on how big their house was. How much money they left behind? Never. I've never seen a single grave marker where people talked about buildings they built or businesses they started, not a single one. Isn't that an amazing thing? There is, there's a birthday, there's a death day, there's the dash between that represents the whole life, the life that is even a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. Sometimes it's, it's a loving wife or faithful mother or something like that. But in the end, some things just don't matter. And I'm at a juncture in my own life where some things are meaning less and less to me, Pastor. It's funny, isn't it, how things change? I must be getting old. I really must be getting old. Because some things that used to matter to me, now it's like, it's meaningless. And other things, and only a few things, seem to matter more and more and more. And watch, please, that's not just true in light of death. That is true in light of the rapture of the church. I'd like to show you this morning, if I may, from this one chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2, what matters in the end. We, we learn from chapter 1 what we're waiting for. We're waiting on Jesus. That's what we're waiting for. But in chapter 2, Paul points out to, out to us in the bottom line what matters in the end. What does matter in the end? And I'll tell you something really interesting about this chapter. It is full of negatives. Now, I'm a positive person. Let's survey. How many, how many optimists are among us? Would you raise your hand, please? All you optimists, God bless you. How many pessimists are among us? Would you raise your hand? How many of you are afraid to vote? Would you raise your hand, please? I am an optimist. I really am. And my wife would say sometimes too much of an optimist. You, you can be, you know, so much of an optimist, you, you're not realistic about some things. And I can, I can get there. There's dangers on both sides, you know. But when I come to chapter number two, every time I read it, I think, ooh, that's rough. Man, that's tough. Mm, man alive, I can't believe that. And, and I was reading and studying the other day, and I came to this chapter, and I'm walking through this chapter, and something dawned on me, and it is this, that the whole chapter builds to the climax of what we just read in verse 19 and verse number 20. Look, please. Yes, all this bad stuff happened. Yes, all the enemies came. Yes, all the suffering happened. Yes, there were struggles and difficulty. Yes, Paul had a, a wearisome way. But in the end, let me tell you what mattered to him, that souls had been saved. It is the eternal perspective. So let's back up. See if you don't see your own experience in it here. Look at verse number one. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. We read that in Acts 17 earlier. Remember, the first day preached and some believed. Look at verse two. But even after that we had suffered before, and we're shamefully entreated. As you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God. And here's the three words that are pretty rough, with much contention. That does not mean Paul was contentious. It means he faced contention while he was preaching the gospel. I was thinking about this the other day. You know, we preachers today, we have it made for the most part. I mean, we really do. We preach in beautiful buildings to, to, to very pleasant audiences that sit there and look at you and kind of nod their head. At least they pretend like they like what you're saying. And every now and then, the biggest thing we struggle with is somebody falls asleep. And I'm sure nobody in this church ever falls asleep, but 
Every now and then you see something like that. And I've had a couple times where there was opposition. I was preaching one time in Washington State years ago, and a drunk came in the back of the church. I didn't know his daughter was in the meeting. He wasn't happy about her being there. And he charged down the aisle screaming at me. Well, right in the middle of my sermon, he said, that's not true. And I thought, what on earth is going on, you know? And so he just kept charging and kept shouting. And I thought, well, I got a mic and he doesn't, so I'm just going to preach louder and he can scream at me. And finally the deacons got him and got him out of the building. I was preaching one night in a meeting in Virginia, and the place was packed that night, I remember. And I was, I was preaching to, to God's people. It was a church meeting like on a Tuesday night or something. And I just sensed in the meeting that I was supposed to place an emphasis on the gospel, and I was in a certain portion of Scripture, and I said something about the fact that only Christ can save. There's only one way of salvation. And I looked up, and I see this woman in the back, and she starts shaking her head violently at me. And I thought, I've hit a nerve here somewhere, so I preached a little more on the gospel. And then she, she crossed her arms, and I saw she got a really angry look on her face, and she just, the whole time I preached, for about 10 minutes, she just shaking her head, shaking her head. And um, I just kept preaching, and finally she stopped shaking her head, and she's just glaring at me, and that took that about another 20 minutes of that. And then I looked back and saw her, and she had put her arms down, and about 10 minutes later, her face had relaxed, and we got to the invitation, and I said, who's here tonight that needs to be saved? You know you're not saved, and you need to be saved. Immediately, her hand was the first up in the air. I did not know, but the woman had come out of a false religion that did not believe that Christ was the Savior of the world, that he was the Son of God. And when it all started, she wasn't too happy about it. By the time it was done, she was the first person down the aisle. She trusted Christ as her Savior that night. Isn't it glorious to see the power of the gospel? But for the most part, for the most part, we preachers today, at least in, in the Western world, we have it made. We don't face this kind of contention, this kind of opposition. But Paul did not one place, every place. Look at verse number 2. He had it at Philippi. Now he has it at Thessalonica. Would you mark in your Bible these words in verse 2? Suffered shamefully entreated, much contention. Boy, that sounds positive. Doesn't that sound positive? And yet, watch, please, Paul said, but I want you to know it was worth it all because you got saved. Would you write this down, number one? What, what do we find here in this passage? Well, first, we find difficulty. Everybody has their difficulties, even preachers. Even people that dress up for church have their difficulties. Sometimes you look at people and you think, that guy must have it all together. That family, they must not have any problems. <laughs> Friend, let me just tell you, everybody's got their junk. Everybody. And I'm looking at a group of people this morning, many of whom I do not know, and I have no idea what you've dealt with this week, but I know one thing. There are lots of difficulties represented in this room. Some are physical and some are, are mental and some are emotional and some are financial and some are relational and some are family and some are spiritual. I don't know what your difficulty is, but I know this. In the end, in the end, please, listen, the difficulty is not going to last, but eternal souls will. Let's go back to Acts 17 again, just for a second. We, we read the first verses of Acts 17, but we stopped. We stopped in verse 4. Now look at verse number 5, but. The first four, four verses, really positive. I mean, Paul's preaching and opening and alleging and reasoning, and he gives the gospel, and some of them believe it's glorious. Now look at verse 5, but the Jews which believe not moved with envy took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring him out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Would to God some people would say that about the church today. Verse 7, Whom Jason also hath received 
And these also do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. When they had taken security of Jason and the other, they let them go. Listen to me. It wasn't all a happy meeting. It wasn't all people waving hankies and saying amen. It wasn't all people just getting saved. No, no. There was difficulty. There was struggle. You cannot move forward without friction. And I want to say to this church this morning, by the grace of God, you've moved forward for the last 50 years. But if you're not careful, you'll shift into neutral now and coast into glory. If you're going to keep moving forward, you just better settle this now in your heart. There's going to be difficulty, but it will be worth it all when we see Jesus face to face. Look down to verse number 13. If it wasn't bad enough in Thessalonica, when Paul moves on to Berea and starts preaching there and people get saved, verse 13 says, but when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge the word of God was preached to Paul of Berea, they came hither also and stirred up the people there. I mean, these are people that didn't want the truth and they didn't want anybody else to have the truth. Doesn't that sound familiar? Sounds like the world we're living in today. Friends, this is not new. We are in a long line of followers of Jesus who've had a fight on their hands, and the fight is not over till the trumpet sounds. And I got good news for you this morning. Would you like the good news? If it feels like the spiritual warfare is intensified and the heat of the battle is a little hotter than it has been, I say rejoice in that because the battle is always hottest just before it is won. We are living on the front lines, and we are living on the battlefront, and we are living near the end of the age, and any moment we're going to see Jesus. And on that day, you're not going to whine about your difficulty. On that day, you're going to rejoice that you know Jesus Christ. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 1. Let me show you a second thing. There's not only difficulty, there's duty. That's a word that doesn't get used much anymore. People don't want to think about their duty before God. But look at Paul's faithfulness to fulfill his duty. Look at verse 3. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. Stop just a minute. You ever think about what God has trusted you with? Whew. God, let us have the gospel. I stand before you this morning. I'm, I'm happy to get to preach to you, but it's a sobering thing to me because I'm thinking what God has given me to do in my life, but it wasn't just Paul that had it. All believers have been entrusted with the stewardship of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God forbid we should keep that to ourselves while the world is perishing all around us. Oh, if ever there was a day that God's people ought to open their mouth and speak for Jesus, it is the hour we're living in now. It is the duty of every Christian to share what they've received, to make known what they do know. Notice what he says at the end of verse 4, not as pleasing men, but God. Let's try our hearts. Lord, deliver us from man-pleasing. The fear of man bringeth a snare. And by the way, there's a whole lot of churches and Christians caught in that snare right now, trying to make it palatable to a world that is perishing. I'm going to tell you, when you see Jesus face-to-face, -face, you're not going to care what the neighbors said. And on that day, it's not going to matter what anybody said. The only thing that's going to matter is what Jesus has to say on that day. Not as pleasing men, but God which tried our hearts. For neither at any time used be flattering words, as you know, or a cloak of covetousness. God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Look at, look at that list. In verse 4, he said we didn't do it for approval. In verse 5, he said we didn't do it for money. And in verse 6, he said we didn't do it for glory. That's pretty good, isn't it? Don't you live for approval, don't you live for money, and don't you live for glory because all those things are passing away. 
And someday, a whole lot that many Christians have lived for and labored for is going to burn up before their very eyes, and it's going to be gone. And on that day, the only thing that's going to matter is what counts for eternity. Look at verse 7. We were gentle among you, even as a nurse, isn't that a tender term, as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls because you were dear unto us. You know, we complain about inconveniences and act like we're martyrs. God help us. I'm going to tell you what we are, spoiled Americans. That's what we are. In the judgment seat, when the martyrs all line up to get the martyr's crown, some of us are going to have to stand to the side shamefully realizing that we made a big deal over our little inconveniences. Paul said, I, I gave it all, people. I didn't just give you a sermon. I gave you myself. And let me just pause and say, you ought to thank God every day that God has given this church in these last 50 years faithful shepherds like he's given you to lead and feed this flock. There are churches all over this country that give anything just to have a pastor. I've talked to some of them recently. I said, can you just tell us somebody to come preach the Bible to us and, and feed us from the Word of God and, and help us? Look, don't ever get over the fact that God gave you the gospel and God gave you a faithful messenger of the truth. And Paul's doing his duty. Look at verse 9. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable in any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. What's he saying? I did my duty. In verse 9, he said, I labored and travailed. In, in verse 9, he said, I did it night and day. In verse 10, he said, I didn't just preach it, I lived it. I, I behaved myself like a servant of God ought to behave himself. Dear Lord, give us some Christians again who have the right message and the right life. They match and they line up with God's way. They do their duty. In the end, that's the only thing that's going to matter. Look at verse 11. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you. That's three good words, isn't it? Exhorted, comforted, charged. As a father doth his children. That you would walk worthy of God who has called you unto his kingdom and glory. I've marked in my Bible. Would you do this? In verse 7, as a nurse, and in verse 11, as a father. That's beautiful, isn't it? He said, I had the gentleness of the nurse, and I had the strength of the daddy. On the one hand, he said, I was tender towards you. I was gentle like a nurse. I took you like a little child. You'd just been born again. And I started nourishing you, nurturing you, and bringing you along in the faith. And then, like a father, guiding his own children and strengthening them and, and helping them to be the people that they're supposed to become. He said, I've done that work with you. What was Paul doing? His duty. Look at verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Paul said, I did my duty, and you're doing your duty, and in the end, that's the only thing that's going to matter. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Someday, time will fade into oblivion, and only eternity will be the thing that matters. Is there difficulty? Yeah, there's difficulty. But souls, that's what matters in the end. Duty? Oh, yes. You ever get tired? You ever get weary? How many tired people are here this morning? Would you raise your hand, please? Been doing your duty this week with your family? Been working your job? 
got up, got your family ready, came to the house of God on the Lord's day, a little weary and well-doing, on the verge of fainting. I'm just going to tell you something. When the trumpet sounds and you see Jesus and give an account of your life, you're going to praise God for every day you gave to Jesus. And the only day you're ever going to regret is the day you live for yourself. What really matters, Paul? Keep reading. Look at verse 14. For ye brethren became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they pleased not God, and have contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Would you write down a third thing? He said in his experience there had been difficulty, there had been duty, and then there had been danger. I believe we are living in dangerous days, and I am not talking about crime. We're living in dangerous days, and I'm not talking about the war that's raging right now. I'm not talking about the absurgence of violence even in our communities. I'm talking about the spiritual opposition that is staring us in the face, and listen to me, church, the persecution that is on its way. And nobody wants to hear this kind of sermon, and frankly, preachers don't really like to preach it. But I'm going to tell you something. As surely as some of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world have been dealing with persecution for a long time, it is coming on us. And as some of God's children in our comfortable modern Christianity don't get some roots in the Lord, they're not going to stand when the persecution comes. Paul said, we got danger. Matter of fact, look at it. In verse number 14, he said, you've suffered it. But he said, if you think you're the only one, look at verse 15. Jesus suffered it. <laughs> he suffered it to the extreme. They killed him. They crucified the Lord of glory. They, they slaughtered the lovely Son of God. Never a meek or gentle man ever walked the planet. And what did they do with him? They put him to death. Do you really think you're going to follow Jesus and avoid persecution? No, no. Evil men and seducers are going to wax worse and worse. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Do not think for a moment that we're going to escape some opposition. There's danger. Look at verse 15 again. He said, the prophets they killed. And Paul said, they persecuted us. Now they're contrary to all men. Look at the danger. The, Jesus faced it. The prophets faced it. Paul faced it. The Thessalonians faced it. And guess what? We're going to face it. And I got good news. You ready? That's not how the chapter ends. No, no. Hasten to the end of the chapter because look, please. Difficulty, duty, danger, oh, yes. But it will be worth it all when we see Jesus face to face. Let me give you one more. Look at verse 17. This hits all of us. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again. Read the last four words of verse 18 out loud with me, church. Ready? But Satan hindered us. Would you mark that in your Bible? Would you write down this word, disappointment? How many of you have ever been disappointed in your whole life? Let's try that one more time. How many of you have ever been disappointed in your whole life? Yeah. Some of you right now are facing great disappointment. Things have not turned out the way you hoped. I mean, let's just get down where we live for a moment. Some of you right now have allowed your disappointment to become disillusionment. That's very dangerous. And we all get disappointed. We all have our problems. We all have people that do us wrong and things that don't turn out the way we hope. But listen to me, church. If you're not careful... You'll become a sour, cynical Christian at the very moment in time when you ought to be most tender and open to the Lord. 
And I'm seeing it like a cancer pervading churches, slipping in among believers, sincere believers who, who've dealt with their difficulty and, and dealt with their duty and dealt with their danger. But when disappointment comes, finally all the air is let out of their balloon and they just think, we just can't go on. Let me tell you something. This is nothing new. Paul had his disappointments. Read the life of Paul. You want to talk about a man who had something to deal with. I get ashamed every time I think about complaining. I really do. When you think about what Paul had to deal with, and look at verse 17 and verse 18. At the end of verse 17, the problem is desire. He said, my desires didn't come to fruition. Proverbs talks about that. It makes the heart sick when, when your desires don't turn out the way you want them to. And then at the end of verse 18, it's not his desires, it's the devil. So you got your desires that don't turn out the way you hope. And on the other hand, you got the devil who's doing everything he can to hinder good things from happening. Somebody says, this is pretty rough, preacher. Yeah, but I noticed a phrase this week that helped me a whole lot. Maybe it'll help you. Would you mark these words in verse 17 for a short time? For a short time. And I just tell you, there's not going to be any disappointment when Jesus shows up. <laughs> I have not seen, ear hath not heard, it is not into the heart of men the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. He wrote to the church at Rome, and he said that God will bruise Satan under your feet shortly. I love that word, shortly. As a kid growing up, we'd be on vacation. I remember saying to Dad, how much longer on this road trip? All you parents know that conversation, right? How much longer do we got? And he never would give me a time. He never would give me a time. He always just said, shortly, we'll be there shortly. I hated that word. Because it wasn't a definite enough time, but watch it. It's not a definite time, but it is a definite promise. Watch. Jesus doesn't give you the time, but he gives you the promise. He says very shortly Jesus is coming, and when he does, he's going to bruise Satan under your feet. Now, I got a good word for you. Ready for this? Genesis 3.15, first promise of the Messiah, said that when Satan came, he would be bruised under the heel of Christ. He's already bruised under Jesus' foot. Praise God for that. When Jesus came out of the grave and ascended back to heaven, he was bruising Satan at that moment. But I'm glad to tell you that very soon we're going be seated with Jesus, and on that day, he'll be bruised under our feet as well. Is there disappointment in life? Yes, there's disappointment. And it's not to minimize what you're dealing with today and the emotion of it, but it is simply to remind you this. Maybe things have not turned out your way, and maybe the devil's giving you fits, and maybe the whole world looks really bad to you right now, but run to the end of the story and remember that in the end, all of this is going to pass away, and the only thing that matters is that which matters for eternity. And so we return to the last two verses. Would you write down the word delight? <laughs> what a beautiful progression. We, we move from the difficulty to the duty to the danger to the disappointment to the delight. Praise God. All these negatives don't end with a negative. They end with a positive. God's stories never end with question marks. They end with exclamation points. And so look at verse 19 and 20 again with new eyes. For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Hey, hey, church. What would make you happy? Come on, tell me. What would, what would make you happy? A bigger house? A, a newer car? Lower gas prices. That would make you happy. More money in the bank? A second week's vacation this year. If your body worked a little better than it, than it is right now. If your mind was a little clearer. If those kids would just straighten up. Come on, tell me. What would make you happy? Listen to me. All of that may be fine in its place, but all of that is only for a time. Paul said, I've been there, done that, lived that, labored through that, suffered through that, and I want you to know in the end that my hope and my joy and my crown of rejoicing is what's going to matter when I see Jesus face to face. 
Oh, that God would stamp eternity on our souls again, church, and we'd stop living for now and start living for then. We'd stop talking about now and start talking about then. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. The things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What's the delight? Well, look at it. First of all, Jesus is coming. Our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. Jesus is coming. That's a delight. Oh, that's not all. Look at the verse again. We're going to be in his presence. Look at it. Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ? It's one thing to talk about him coming to us, but now we're going to be with him. Isn't that going to be glorious? And we're planning to have meetings this afternoon and Monday evening, Tuesday evening. I'm excited about it. I hope you'll be here for every one of it because all this just connects and builds together. I hope you'll make an effort to be in, in every meeting. But I got a, an announcement to make, a very important announcement. If Jesus comes before tomorrow evening, we will not be meeting here. We're going to meet in a bu- much better location. And it's going to be the grandest, most glorious meeting you've ever been in in your life. We'll talk more about that church meeting this week. But, oh, church, listen to me. Ponder this. Whatever you're dealing with right now, whatever mess you're in, whatever chaos is surrounding, whatever's clouding your view of the throne, remember this. Christ is coming, and we are going to be with him. That's not all. Here's the real thrust of the verses. Look at them, please. It's not only true that Christ is coming and we'll be in his presence, but watch, please. Those we have brought with us will be our greatest joy. And so I come full circle back to where I started. Who are you going to take with you? If I said to you this morning, who would you like to see saved? Sincere Christians would say, oh, preacher, everybody. We want to see everybody saved. Okay, good. Well, let's take the everybody just a minute and talk about somebody. Because our Christianity gets pretty general and generic sometimes. Lord, bless everybody. Lord, save all the lost people. No, wait a minute. Who? At the judgment seat, who will point to you and say, that man, that man right there, he brought me to Jesus. Around the throne of God, who will say, that woman, she prayed me to God. That family, they lived down the road from us, and they just adopted us, and they got a burden for us, and they wouldn't leave us alone. And they got us the gospel. And that man, that man sacrificed. He sacrificed. And God used him to enable somebody to get the message of Jesus to us. Do you understand that some things are not going to matter? There's only two eternal things on planet earth right now. Only two eternal things. That is the eternal word of God and the eternal souls of men. And our job is to connect those two eternal things. That's our only job. And in the end, so much that we've worried about, so much we've given our resources to, so much that we've thought about, so much that we've worked towards is just going to crumble like a house of cards, like sand sifting through our fingers on the shoreline. It's all going to be gone. In the words of Solomon, it's going to be vanity of vanities, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Why? Because the only thing that matters is that which is connected to God and to eternity. And the great delight is that what's going to last So let's make it real simple, all right? What matters in the end, preacher? Number one, your own soul. Your soul. Are you saved? Are you certain? What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? 
Your body, worried about your body right now? You're going to get a new body someday if you're a Christian. Stop worrying about it. But if you're not a Christian, it's not your body right now you ought to be worried about. It's your eternal, never-dying soul. Your soul. And I'm increasingly convinced as I'm in and out of churches that churches very often have church members in them who really are not sure of their own salvation. And I'm not trying to make anybody doubt. I'm trying to lead everybody to assurance in Jesus Christ. I want to say to everybody in this room this morning what Peter said, you better make your calling and election sure. If there was ever a day you ought to drive a stake in the ground a mile deep about your soul's salvation, it is today because Christ is coming. And in the end, the thing that matters is not only your soul. It's all the eternal souls around you. Did you think about all the people you saw this week who don't know Jesus? I've been watching, as most of you have, the news coming out of Ukraine. My heart is broken for those people. It really is. And I've been praying for them. There's a lot of believers there, a lot of preachers there. I'm praying for the work of God there in that part of the world and all of that. But something dawned on me this week, watching those poor pitiful people and broken heart and lost everything they have and all that kind of thing. That's a tragedy. But there's a greater tragedy. You know the greater tragedy? That there are eternal souls perishing there who do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Now, wait a minute. The truth is, that's not just true half a world away. That's true in our back door. There are people right here in this town who are dying today. Some of them will be dead for sunset who don't know Jesus. Now, you ponder that just a moment. How is it that we've gotten our priorities so skewed that we have forgotten it's about souls, church? It's about souls. Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? And I wonder, if you were to stand before Jesus today, 12 o'clock, up and down. If at 12.05 today you were to, I say stand, but I don't think you'll stand long, you were to kneel the feet of Jesus, to give an account of your life, would there be any soul that you can say, I brought this one to Jesus? Any soul. So well, I can't do everything, preacher. Don't do everything. Do something. Well, I can't reach everybody, preacher. No, you can't. You know part of our problem? We've let the world get so big in our mind, we've forgotten how big our God is, and we've been overwhelmed by the mass of humanity around us, the billions of souls that we've forgotten that people get saved one at a time, and every soul matters in light of eternity, and you can't win everybody, but you can win somebody. And I'm going to tell you what matters in the end. Souls. Today's an anniversary day, and a great one too. Congratulations. 50 years, praise God for his goodness. Do you know what I think for every Christian? I think every celebration should be a rededication. That every special day you mark and rejoice and celebrate something should be a day you look heavenward and push the spiritual reset button and say, we're going to do the things that this church did when it started, and we're going to be the Christians we were when we first got saved, and we're going to get back to what really matters in light of eternity. Because in the end, all that matters is souls. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me right where you are for a moment? Our heads are bowed and we sit quietly, reverently, prayerfully for a moment.
without any music as of yet, may I ask, how many people in this room today would say, Preacher, I know I've been born again. I know I'm saved. If I, if I died or Jesus came by 1205, as you said, I'm ready. I know I'm ready to go to heaven. That's settled. I want you to raise your hand as high in the air as you can get it. Keep it up just a moment. With your hand lifted to heaven, would you thank the Lord for that right now? Just with a holy hand lifted to God, say to Jesus, Oh, thank you, Jesus, for not letting me go to hell. Praise God for his salvation. It's the Lord's mercies we're not consumed. Oh, Lord, restore unto us the joy of thy salvation. You may lower your hands, and I must ask this question with no one else looking. And I will not embarrass you, but I want to pray for you. Who among us today would say, Preacher, I couldn't raise my hand. I couldn't raise it with confidence. I don't have 100% assurance of my soul's salvation. And if I only had 60 seconds to meet God or 60 seconds till the trumpet sounded, I'm not positive that I'm ready, that my sins have been forgiven, that I'm really saved. Preacher, pray for me. I don't want to be lost. I want you to raise your hand high in the air with mine, long enough for me to see it, and then pull it back down. Pray for me, preacher. That's me. I'm not certain of my soul's salvation. i got to get that settled today. God bless you, dear one. Anyone else, pray for me. I'm not certain of my soul's salvation, but I must get that settled. If you just raised your hand, nobody in the room is looking but me right now. If you just raised your hand, would you lift your head and look at me for a moment? I just want to speak to you. Thank you for your honesty. Can I tell you something? Just you and I talking. God loves you, dear one. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Do you believe that he rose from the dead? That's good. Do you believe what the Bible says, that if we will put our faith in him, he will forgive our sins and save us? Do you believe that? That's good. I'm going to give you a verse, all right? It's not my word. This is the words of our Lord, a promise God made. He said, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. It means this, if you'll come to Jesus, he'll come to you. That's good, isn't it? If you'll take him as your Savior, he will take you into his family, and you can know that for sure. Is that what you want? That's wonderful. I'll tell you a little story some people don't know. I made a profession of faith as a boy. Years later, I went through a season of real doubt and question about my salvation. I really did. I wasn't sure, but I wanted to get it settled, and I remember the day that I finally said to the Lord, Lord, I'm not trusting the church, I'm not trusting the preacher, and I'm sure not trusting me. I trust you, Jesus, to be my Savior. And that day, the Lord Jesus Christ gave me assurance that I belonged to him and he belonged to me. I'm going to tell you, that was a great day. Is that what you want for your life? That's good. I want to give you an opportunity right now, I'm talking about right where you sit, to call on Jesus and in simple faith, settle the matter of your salvation. Are you willing to do that? That's good. Would you bow your head with me right where you are? The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be. That's certain. So would you call on him right now? Say something like this from your heart, dear one. And anybody else that's listening that needs to settle their salvation, maybe even somebody online needs to be saved. If you need Jesus, pray this from your heart. Dear God, I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I do believe Jesus died for me. I believe you rose from the dead like the Bible says.
and I repent of my sin. And by faith, I take Jesus to be my Savior. Lord, I trust you. Forgive my sin and come into my life. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for giving me eternal life. Help me follow you from this day forward. With our heads bowed and nobody looking but this preacher, I want to ask, whosoever, whosoever, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's God's word. I want to ask, who in this room today would say, preacher, I prayed that prayer or something like it from my heart to God. I meant it, and I'm settling this today right where I'm sitting that I'm trusting Jesus, I'm driving a stake in the ground, getting this salvation settled today. I want you to raise your hand with mine right now, would you please? God bless you. If that's you, would you lift your head and look at me just a second? I want to congratulate you on the greatest decision you ever made in your life. Now, these other folks don't know this, but I'm getting ready to ask a whole bunch of Christian people to come join me in a prayer. I don't want you to get lost in the shuffle, in the crowd. I want someone to pray with each of you. I'd like a man to pray with you, sir, or a lady to pray with you, I'd like somebody to give you something to take home with you to read about following Jesus and about knowing the Lord as your Savior, what that means. And I'm going to give you my word. I don't know you and you don't know me, but I'm going to give you my word. We will not embarrass you. I'm not going to make you give a speech, make you some spectacle in front of people. I will not embarrass you in any way. But the pastor and his wife are both right here with a Bible in their hand. In fact, I'm going to let them come stand right here in the middle aisle. And I'm going to ask those of you that called on the Lord today as your Savior, if you'll get up out of your seat right now and come greet the pastor and his wife, let him have a prayer with you. Would you please? God bless you, sir. God bless you, man. That's wonderful. You're settling the matter today of your soul's salvation. And let them talk with him, pray with you. And if there's somebody else here today that needs Jesus, I want to urge you, come to Christ now. If you're not sure of your salvation, come to Christ now. If you've been saved and you've never followed the Lord in baptism or You've never joined this church, and that's what God's telling you to do. Get up and come now, and somebody will meet you here and help you. But I want to speak to all the Christians who are here now. If you're saved, I'm talking to you. You raised your hand a moment ago and said you knew the Lord as your Savior. I rejoice in that truth, but let's get down to where we live for just a moment, shall we? How many Christians in the room would say, Preacher, I'm saved, but I haven't been living like it. I'm not where I need to be as a Christian. And today, what I need to do is rededicate my life to the Lord Jesus and make this day a day of rededication in my life. The Holy Spirit's talking to me. Preacher, that's me. Pray for me. I want you to raise your hand with mine right now, would you please? God bless you. If you mean it, stand to your feet right where you are. Just stand up right where you are. God bless you. I admire that. Amen. Wonderful. Praise God. Who else? You say, I, I really need to rededicate myself to God. If you're standing right now, would you just lift your head and look at me? I, I, I commend you for your courage and the way God has spoken to you and you're responding. I'm about to ask a whole bunch of people to come pray, but I'm going to ask you to lead the charge to the old-fashioned altar. I'm going to ask you if you're serious, and I believe you are, you wouldn't have stood up. You'll just leave your place now and come find a place in this altar to tell God what you just told me. Just come kneel here and say to the Lord, Lord, I'm, I'm saved, but I just need to make some things right with you today, and I want to be right. God bless you. Brother Luke is right here. If there's any one of you that needs somebody to pray with, talk with, See this man. He'll help you and get somebody to pray with you. I don't want anybody to get missed here. Wonderful. It's what matters in the end, you see. It's what matters in the end. There are other counselors who can come pray with some of these folks, encourage them. You know them. Amen. Now let's speak to all the rest of us.
We say we're right with the Lord, say we love the Lord, say we want to serve the Lord. Let's get down to what really matters. Let's get down to what really matters. How many of you would be honest? I'll raise my hand first. How many of you would be honest and say, Preacher, I've let so many other things cloud my mind, so many other duties and difficulties, all that's going on around me and disappointments, danger, that I have not myself been as soul conscious and as eternity conscious as I ought to be. And preacher, the Holy Spirit is stirring me today and convicting me. I need to get back to a heart and a passion for souls myself. Pray for me. I want you to raise your hand with mine right now. Would you please? You say, that's me. If you're serious, would you just stand right where you are as a public testimony to that? You say, I'm saved, but oh, I want the passion for souls again. Wonderful. If you're standing, would you look at me? If something doesn't awaken in God's people, now you listen to me. We're on the edge of eternity. If something doesn't awaken in our churches, in God's people, very shortly, there's going to be a whole lot of souls that perish and go to hell at the end of the church age. I want you to imagine us meeting God someday and answering for why we were so lackadaisical and anemic about our public testimony for Jesus. If you're standing in a moment, <clears throat> I'm going to ask you to lead the charge and join those who've already come to this altar. And I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm praying this for myself. God, give me my tears. Give me a tender heart again. Give me a passion for souls. And I'm going to ask you if you'll make that your prayer today. Would you stand with me all around the room? Here's what we're going to do. Our heads are bowed. People are being dealt with and prayed with. I'm going to begin a prayer. I'm going to ask the pianist if she'll come to the piano. <clears throat> when I pause my part of the prayer, I'm not going to say amen. I'm just going to point to her. When I do, I'm going to ask every one of you that know God's touched your heart, if you'll leave your place, come find a place in this altar to pray. And let's open this revival meeting on our knees, asking the Lord to make us eternity conscious again. If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day, and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit, and don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday.